How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming as church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't believe that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is from the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church's concern is being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today our guest is John Pavlovitz. Did I say that right? You did, man. Thank you. I meant to ask you briefly before. And halfway through that sentence, I was like, I didn't ask. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's okay. You got it perfect. For a little bit of an intro, John is a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. And I just saw that his blog, Stuff That Needs To Be Said, recently surpassed 100 million views. John, over the years, has been known for his social and political writings, and he first gained popularity through the blog that I just mentioned. Over the years, he's gone on to publish multiple books, being A Bigger Table, Hope, and Other Superpowers, a book called Low, and he's become one of the most prominent voices of progressive Christians that many people believe are sort of imagining and envisioning this new path for people to keep growing and evolving into in their faith. And his newest book, which we'll be talking about today, is coming out September 28th, and it's called If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. I just got off the phone with a friend right before this, and he was like, oh, dude, that's such a good title. You got to ask him about You got to ask him about that. And I know after this interview, the people listening in, you are going to want to get that. So let's stop there. John, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me personally and with the listeners today. Oh, Kevin, thanks so much for having me. I so, I so appreciate it. Yeah, and you almost get to experience like a Hawaiian sunrise this morning because the sun just came out not that long ago out here. Yeah, I've got invited to Maui uh, later in the or December, so we're still like looking at planning, but that looks like a place I could be comfortable. <laughs> oh, awesome! That's going to be great. Uh, let, let's start off before the book. You know, if you could just introduce yourself to the people a bit more personally. So, if we zoom out a bit, what are some of the? <clears throat> it's always interesting for people to see what are some of the bigger picture movements of your life specifically when it comes to your relationship with the church and faith to help people make sense of where you are today? What are some of those movements, kid, growing up, whatever, however it kind of looks like for you? Sure. You know, I grew up in uh, central New York and I was raised Roman Catholic. And what I always like to say, you know, very uh, traditional Italian Roman Catholic upbringing. So raised on gluten and guilt. And you know, growing <laughs> up, I had this... <laughs> it's a lot of pasta, a lot of repentance. And, you know, I have this idea growing up that God was massive and made everything and yet knew me intimately and loved me completely. But there was always a sense of that God, I, sh I was supposed to fear that God. And so I had that sort of lens growing up and drifted from that organized religion as I got a little bit older, went off to college. And college for me was in a big city in Philadelphia. And just being immersed in diversity and having sort of a front row seat to that diversity and to poverty in ways that I had never experienced. And the world just kind of opened up to me 
and kind of went along and did my thing there. And maybe, uh, I guess, 10, almost 10 years later, I was, um, my wife and I were looking to get married at the time, and we couldn't find a church. We were feeling sort of pulled back toward the institutional church for this event. We felt like it needed to be in a place of worship, and um, we could not find a church that would you know, there was churches, I just did something very spiritual. I got in the yellow pages and just started, you know, calling churches. And, and, there for, were, and for the kids listening in, just Google right. yellow pages and you'll know what it, what, what it looked like for John exactly. to be able to look for that. Yeah, exactly. I'll send you a PowerPoint and you'll have to, you know, whatever that is. And, but the funny thing was, you know, I'm, I'm trying to reach out to these churches and they're saying, well, you should really need to be a member here or you need to go through these classes. And so I was really kind of discouraged because I was trying to find my way back to, to the organized church. And then this Methodist pastor, a woman, called me and um, I still have the post-it note and where I wrote down the, the date and, and, what, and her name. And her name was Susan May. And she basically said, she listened to my story and she said, well, why don't you come and experience the church and just see how you feel? And we walked in this little country chapel and we really felt like a lot of the things that we thought were supposed to be part of, of church were there. That really deep sense of community interdependence and just really outward thinking. And so I started volunteering there and then started working with the teenagers and then slowly found that I had this passion for youth ministry and my faith as I started to teach students of faith that I didn't really have, my faith started to grow mm -hmm. and then started on the road to ministry where the point was where I got to a point where I was offered a job and had to choose between leaving, you know, my art director career, my graphic design career that I was supposed to be doing for the rest of my life mm -hmm. and ministry. So it was completely foreign to me. It was completely unexpected. And then the short of it is the churches started growing. My profile got larger and as that happened, I began to realize there's a lot of tensions between the person I think I'm supposed to be as I follow Jesus and the pastor I'm expected to be, mm. which sort of led me to this place, uh, you know, maybe not eight, nine years ago where I just said, you know, what, I need to say everything. And mm. I either, I'm either going to be a partially employed pastor, a partially honest pastor and employed pastor. And mm. so there came that moment when it just everything had to break and it did. And so found myself, you know, removed from the church and that's when the real fun started, which is the road wow. I've been on for the past, you know, eight years or so. Wow. Yeah. That's that story I think is increasingly a story. A lot of people kind of go through as like an archetypal kind of like path because you know, the author, the, uh, the author, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote the war of art, he says, everybody has two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within. Yep. And for so many passages, I think that's so true. There's the life we live, like the public, this is what we're saying. This is what we're preaching, you know, and yes. there's the unlived life, not in the sense of like, you know, uh, duplicity in a moral sense. It's I'm, I'm growing and I'm changing and I'm evolving in how I see the world. But what, the moment that happens, I can immediately see all of the consequences down the road if I start saying these things. That's right. And all of a sudden there seems to be, there's this defining, am I will? it's weird to say that, but it's like, am I willing to gain myself and possibly lose all my ministry success? Or am I gonna silence that voice and just keep being that person? Yeah, I mean, that's, that was totally my existence. And the thing was, you know, I can remember being, you know, mega church pastor, being in front of thousands of people and delivering a message and then thinking while I'm saying it, 
you know, you don't really believe this, right? And <laughs> you know, I tell people it doesn't start. You're not trying to be deceptive. Most mm-hmm. ministers start out because they 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 love people and they want to be in community. And so you find this community, and what happens, I think, is you slowly become you beholden to that community, mm-hmm. and you and you begin. You know, I would write messages, and I would realize as I've got more explicit and more bold, I would think about certain people, even knowing where they sit and thinking, this Mm -hmm. is going to really tick them off. Mm -hmm. And you start playing this game. You know, I was writing a blog around that time for me, mostly for youth pastors and parents in my church. And I was really careful to couch the language in a way that I could begin to say things without actually going too far. I knew if I said it this way, I'd be okay. Mm -hmm. And that was a dance. And so the more the greater distance between the person you are and the pastor you are, that's where the problem comes. Mm, and you yeah. have that moment where everything breaks or you just are able, you know, you, you break down. Mm. Yeah. To, to, uh, I don't think I knew that, that like in the details of that part of your story. So for you, was it finally, you know, in order for the fullness of my voice to come out or for me to co- sort of live more aligned I'm going to walk away from that role. Was it like tension there? Or did you just know it was time to move on basically? You know, the thing about where I was, I was well loved and I had been there almost a decade and I'm, I'm on the leadership team. I'm leading youth and family. I'm writing songs for the church, leading worship. Wow. I mean, like, you know, really, and really loved and, and yeah. having, we're, and we're doing exciting ministry, but there were these parts of that experience that I was feeling the tension with. And so for a while I, I sort of managed it. Right. And then, Writing this blog, the Sandy Hook shooting happened. And mm. I remember that day or later that day, seeing like Mike Huckabee, seeing James Dobson sort of twisting it and saying, oh, this is because we've taken God out of schools and all that. And I wrote this blog post that was, I was not thinking about keeping a job while I wrote it. And so mm. it was really visceral. And, and, and that blog reached a large number of people. And it was mm. really then where I decided, okay, there's, I have a responsibility as a pastor to be explicit. And, um, and that specificity I know was going to come with some collateral damage. And so I stayed there. Everything was fine, but I felt like I had really done what I could do. And I moved to a new church, took a new job. And I always say like five months into that time, I heard God calling me to leave that church. And it came in the form of my pastor's voice saying, you're fired. And because, (laughs) you know, I didn't have an equity of trust there. I didn't have Mm -hmm. leeway and I didn't have relational capital and so me speaking those things, I was a liability to that community. And so they, you know, they fired me. But a couple of weeks before that, I had met a, a pastor, a local progressive pastor. And he said, what I know about you in 10 minutes and what I know about the place where you are, this is not going to last. Oh, he man. said, you have outgrown this thing. And so he said, this is advanced severance pay. He said, serve faithfully until you can no longer or until they ask you to leave. But one of those two things will happen soon. And it did. Wow. Well, was yeah. that was that in North Carolina too? Yeah, that was in North Carolina. It was in you know three hours away here in Raleigh, and so there I am. You know, brought two kids, my wife. We all moved. Um, we in five months that was over. We had no community here, um, no family, and it was about trying to figure out. Well, what do I do now? Do I even want to go back to being a minister? Uh, do I want to start in another church? And do I want to you know start a whole new career? And so there was a real time of just figuring that out but I always tell people the beautiful part of that was all of a sudden I was free of the expectations of being a pastor Mm. and so I could ask the questions honestly and I could say what you know what do I believe and what do I want to be a part of and what's the work I want to do yeah that it's 
it's it's tragic and and it's it's you know comedic at the same time if you allow it to be together but it's crazy how hard it is and how much it takes to be a pastor and be fully human yeah and the level of freedom required the level of differentiation required for that the level of constant risks of being that knowing there's consequences as a result it's 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 a yeah. it's a tragic sense of irony because we're the ones hopefully as clergy folks who are leading the way when it comes to the ability to be human to to be yeah. honest to ask the questions to allow the journey to lead us wherever the chips of cognitive sort of organization fall yeah. you know while we're doing it I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead because I want to stay on this for a sec before we get to the book. I sometimes laugh right now at how, and I, I mentioned this to a few people who come on, at how popular the word deconstruction is right now. Because mm-hmm. people, you know, people go through that first big paradigm shift at different points in their journey, if they do, right? If they kind of yeah. get to that place, you know, some people like, I remember I, I, I told Doug this when he was on, but I have a very different experience and didn't grow up in the church, had my own sort of existential crisis as a teenager, was eating a bunch of mushrooms at this time, have an experience of God while on mushrooms that, that really just changed the trajectory of my life and came into the fold at like low church, you know, charismatic kind of classic evangelical stuff. Like early 2000s, mid 2000s, I was 20. Uh And I ended somehow ended up at a four square Bible college. You know what four square is? It's I do because our church in Raleigh that I ended up this progressive pastor I was talking about. It was a four square plant that he drifted, and we ended up getting we losing our building and everything. So <laughs> I got yeah, it. Yeah, so, so they they have like a like a flagship school, you know, in in California called Life Pacific. When I was there, like great experience, like great people. My first time around Christians, like awesome. But I remember after my first or second year, some kid said to me there, he was like, hey, man, he's like, you should be careful how you talk here. And I'm like pretty new to all this, to be honest. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you keep saying stuff like that, people are going to think you're emergent. (laughs) (laughs) And and at that point, I didn't know what that was. And I was like, I better figure it out just in case. And so that summer, it was just all I read was, you know, this is 2008 or like 2008-ish. That's like Tony Jones' newest book. And right now I'm reading all Brian's stuff. And I was like, yeah. whoa, the one thing they don't want me to be is the only thing that makes sense of the future I'm going into. So it kind of had the reverse effect. But, you yeah. know, that that first big paradigm shift, you're thinking about what you believe for the first time. You're examining it. You're seeing a life beyond that. That happens in different stages, and it appears right now to be happening in a collective way for a lot of evangelical types. In a way, it hasn't had, it hasn't before, where it seems to be happening so broadly. Mm-hmm. For you, you know, you you share. I in a Methodist church. I'm in these larger like mega church setting. I'm leading. What were some of? I'm always interested because it's good for people to have maps of others' journeys as they're going through their own. Right. What were some of the initial? cracks in the surface paradigm shifting events critical moments where you knew your faith was changing you're asking new questions your views were evolving and then how did and and what did that feel like when because a lot of times right when that happens Mm -hmm. you understand the implications and you see all the ways it puts you at odds with your tribe yeah 
you know, what sure. were, was it like, I'm reading this, I'm going, I'm asking this question. How did that look and feel for you? I think the first part was the issue of sexuality. So thinking about LGBTQ human beings, and it was always been something that didn't quite ring true, but I began to say, well, I can frame it in this way, or maybe, uh, maybe I'm not understanding it. And so I, I was realized that there was sort of a party line in my church that I wasn't quite there, but I was trying to make the best of it and reconcile those things. And then I actually had a, a brother come out and, mm. and then what happened was I tell people that life started to argue with my theology. And so mm. I started to have these relationships with LGBTQ people and say, this no longer, this means my the scriptures or the way I'm being told to interpret them no longer rings true. Mm. And so I went on a journey to say, okay, let me take those, you know, seven, eight clobber verses. And I'm going to just look at those and try to dig into them so that I really know what I believe. And so then of course I find out things about that, that, Hey, this isn't what I always thought it said or how I was supposed to. And I thought that was all I was doing. But the truth was, then you finish that exercise, and now I say, if I was wrong about that or misled about that, what about these sentences around those verses? And what about those books that those verses are a part of? And then I'm looking at this whole library, and I'm thinking, okay, now the implications are everything is going to have to be examined. And I always say it's mm. not deconstruction for me. It was demolition. It was just like, <laughs> okay, this whole thing's coming down. Mm. And then while ministering. So mm. trying to do that in real time while maintaining some semblance of surety, you know, that certainty being up there as a pastor, like I was really good at being, at seeming certain of stuff that I no longer believed. <laughs> um, so that was really it. And it was also realizing, flashing back to my time in Philadelphia as a college student, and I realized I had a much more diverse life before I I was a pastor and I was a better person before I was a wow. pastor. And, that, and I go, okay, something's got to give. And that's kind of where everything began to coalesce. Mm. Yeah. I think those, those stories, even small glimpses are so helpful for so many leaders to be honest. And also younger pe younger people have such a different experience right now because it's just such that's a different true. time culturally. But even for leaders, I think along the way who are wrestling with alignment and integrity and honesty and as they're going through their own process while thinking about leading, seeing life on the other side, seeing people who can say it, you, it honestly gets better and you become more loving and the faith That's becomes right. even wider and more mysterious after you let go of some of the things you thought you were supposed to believe, but were really were just kind of placeholders along the way. So I think those yeah. stories are so important. Right now. Well, well, and real quick, you know, when I, right before, after, right after I was fired from that church, I was still writing the blog and I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life here, but I'm just going to get up every day and speak into the world and wrote this blog post called If I Have Gay Children. And that reached millions of people that really wow. started everything and brought the book deal and all this stuff. But for me, it was the moment I did that and let those words out and there was no filter then I realized how many people in my church and also other churches were saying, okay, that's actually me too, or I'm asking the same question, or I'm feeling the same prompts. And I think that's what I tell ministers is like, be brave, because, you know, I remember being in a Methodist church, and I get ready to speak, and I said to the pastor, hey, here's some things I'm going to say. Are you okay with this? And he said, no, please say it, because I want to, but I can't. And I said, well, you could exactly. you just might end up out here with me, right? And so there's something that, yeah, that's risky, and it's terrifying, but you're going to free yourself and other people. And it is true. It's so much better on the other side of it. And you want that for people. Mm. Yeah, I had a, when I first moved back out to, I lived in Orange County for five years, my wife and I, after we first got married in Costa Mesa, then we 
came back to Hawaii in 2013 and I taught for one semester at a Christian college here. Uh, one semester now I'm banned from the campus as a whole. <laughs> but I felt, you know, I felt like, okay, like perhaps people like other people there, kind of like that pastor with you thought like they could p- push a little yeah. further towards the edges through me, which I was totally fine with. Long story short, now I can't even step foot on the campus. <laughs> I had one semester. That's a long story. Wow. But no, that's great, man. I, and I love hearing that too, not knowing some of those things for people to get a bigger picture glimpse of, you know, where you got to today. I also thought, you know, when you're raised, you know, Roman Catholic, when you, you know, you have guilt and a lot of gluten, you know, another way of saying that yeah. is you grow up with a, you know, fear of God and fettuccine. So you can use that if you want. That's right. There you go. <laughs> Um, so for the book, if God is love, don't be a jerk. Great title. This is, this is the fourth book. Yeah. This, this is, your is fourth? you know, I released the compilation, but I think it's the fourth uh, book. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you start off saying this, and I want you to elaborate on this. If you want a good laugh, Google the phrase, you had one job. And you tell the you tell the story of what might happen if you do that, but then you make the point at the end of how this can put on display how easy it is to miss the one thing. And you write in your book, I imagine Jesus knows well the curiosity that comes with watching people given clear direction lose their way. So what happens if people Google the phrase you had one job and how is it connected with that quote? Well, well, you know, you do that and you just see people who are, you know, installing a toilet seat like uh, upside down or you see them putting cheese on top of a burger bun right in a fast food place and you just go the elemental simplicity of the act that you're doing if if that's really all that you need to focus on and somehow if you miss that why did you miss it were you distracted you know where did someone give you bad information were you not prepared and so i think that's the question i ask of of people of faith especially christians in america and say what is it that caused you to be so off of the mission and so, you know, um, so far divergent from the gospel? And like, how does that happen? And uh, so that's what I mean. I mean, this elemental thing of love and how people are not, I think the Christianity of cruelty is what I can't mm. fathom. You know, I, I understand all the forces at work here uh, in bad theology, but I don't quite comprehend how you take the message of Jesus and then have this sort of um, unapologetic uh, enmity. Um, that's, where, mm. that's where the struggle is. Mm. Yeah, you, you go on to talk about, obviously, the danger and the disaster of having a, quote, loveless or Jesusless Christianity. Mm. You know, and you just mentioned that, which is a great phrase, you know, Christianity of cruelty. You know, how, I mean, you've had so much experience in the church with so many folks, right? You're, you're in, in many ways have been, you know, one of the, a perennial insider to the tradition throughout your life and, you know, since mm. your 20s and knowing so many of the ins and outs how 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 can we have a loveless and jesusless christianity like one for the people with that enmity how do you how have you seen that justified within them of this sense of like we're right and we have this and also like what what are examples what might that what does a a christianity of cruelty look like concretely in our culture today 
Well, I think you, you see the residual effects of sort of accumulated fear. Uh, I think, you know, what religion does at its worst, worst is, it, is it says, I'm going to take all your prejudices and your phobias and your fears, and we're going to lean into those. We're going to press all those buttons because we're going to create something that requires an adversary. It needs mm. an enemy. It needs someone to feel like they're always in danger. And so they're always in a battle posture. And I think what happens is when you're in that battle posture, what you end up doing is not only fighting for what you think is going to protect you, but you become sort of um, offensive in that. So you want to not only protect yourself, but to damage other people. There's almost like, a, I want to hurt you before you're going to hurt me. And so even seeing something as simple as, you know, anti-mask. I think, I think, that, I think that was in Mark 18, you know, that, that Jesus said, you know, make sure you hurt others before they that, hurt you. Yeah, that's actually, that's right, perfectly. <laughs> um, you know, outdo your enemies. Um, you know, and that, that's the thing, you know, you see an anti-mask and anti-vaccine. It's not enough to have a belief system for yourself, but somehow that you want to be punitive and how you express that, that you want to hurt other people. And that's just something I think is all about the fear and trying to protect whatever it is you feel like you're losing. Hmm. Yeah. I mean that, you know, the, I remember like 10, 15 years ago when that Barna study came out that always, I think stuck with people where it's like, what are the top three things people think of when they think of Christian? And this is 10 to 15 years ago. And we've, and That's the, right. things have changed drastically. Like all of this is probably even exponentially increased and intensified since then. Yeah. But at that point, they're like top three is like, you know, anti-abortion, anti-gay and just and far right, basically. Yeah. You, you know, know like, did... yeah, yeah, go Sorry. ahead. No, I was just going to say, I'll, I'll share it with you after this is over. But I, I asked that question on Twitter a couple of months ago, maybe. And I said, what do you, when you think of the word Christian, what's the first word you think of? And, you know, there were thousands of responses. And I started tabulating it. And basically, you know, things like love and kindness and generosity, they weren't even in the top 20. And, and, and these are a lot of people who are still professed believers. But you just saw this, oh, you know, hypocrisy, greed, judgmentalism, hatred, bigotry. And you're just thinking, wow, that is really, how do you overcome that as a person of faith who has impulses mm -hmm. to be empathetic and to try and reclaim this thing? I think that's a big part of this. There are people who are trying to figure out, like I tell them, if you're an honest minister of any kind or an honest believer, you're fighting with and for your faith tradition simultaneously. But when you see a list like that and you know that that perception is there and that it's not unfounded, Absolutely. that's where you think, how do I do that work? How do I push against that? What is my response? Mm. Yeah, you, you also write in your book as we're talking about that, you say, and since you are referring to the, the statement before, you said you're probably in some form of deconstruction, reconstruction, or straight up demolition of your former faith, which I think right. is very true at a much broader level than it ever has been in the U.S. right now, specifically with evangelical types. Mm -hmm. um, and you put, you know, you are in the, so there's a, there's a word of, of comfort after and sort of naming what's happening. And you wrote, you are in the emotional growing pains of adult spirituality. Yeah. So people are going through this massive shift. Obviously, people who haven't gone through that shift, you know, as human beings, we always look ahead with fear. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy. To, so often when people are growing or changing, people look ahead with fear and then it's easy to look back with disdain, you know, and there has to be a way forward and yeah. for people growing without that. But what, what you're saying to people is, 
as you're going through those shifts, dem, you know, the demolition, the deconstruction, the changes, this is actually the natural growing birth pains of an adult form of spirituality, which I love that phrase. And, you know, for when you're in the middle of that transitional phase, it's hard to see what life is like on the other side. It's hard to see what beliefs mean on the other side. It's hard to know what faith or following Jesus specifically feels like on the other side. So can you give people a glimpse, right? You're a, you're, let's say you're further ahead on this, you know, journey that so many people are going on. What does a faith look like on the other side of the certainties, the, the clear tight belief systems, the kind of, you know, conforming to the way most people think you're supposed to believe. Um, how does it feel as you grow into that? What does it look like? What does it feel like that more at what you call an adult form of spirituality, specifically in the way of Jesus? I think what it did for me was that it gave me a sense of, I could sort of exhale because I wasn't constantly worried about getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't, you know, I think a lot of people that fear is manipulated from the beginning that we're, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to piss off God. We're going to um, let down our responsibility to evangelize or whatever it is. There's always this pressure. <laughs> and I think mm -hmm. for me, it's like what, what deconstruction did or what progression of my faith has done is allow me to relax in the world, mm -hmm. realizing that if God is God, then God understands exactly who I am and the road I've traveled, why I believe what I believe, why I don't believe what I don't believe, the prayers that I have trouble praying. So I don't need to impress that God. I don't need to fix my relationship with that God because that God really understands me. And then I just get up every day and say, what do I still feel is, is beautiful about the life and teachings of Jesus? And then I begin to try and emulate those. But beyond that, I mm -hmm. try to relieve myself of the responsibility to figure everything out because it's unfigure outable. And so I mm -hmm. just go, let me make my best guess today at how I'm supposed to live and then repeat that. And then mm -hmm. I'm going to look back on that journey and trust that God will place me where I need to be if that God is God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great and a really insightful answer. And I've done quite a bit of thinking about that in my own life, you know, pastorally, especially in relationships with people who have grown up in the church. And I'm like, how can you feel that? Like, I like the use that word relax and exhaling, uncoiling, you know, kind of being undone yeah. a bit in a good way. How can you feel the freedom to be present and love somebody? If I'm constantly thinking about the pressure of, if you don't, adjust your cognitive beliefs to think exactly what I can, your destination for eternity is somehow is, is doomed basically. Like you can't, if you really, if you really live your life, believing that and holding that pressure, you can't relax around. Oh. That's why I know a lot of, and that's what I realized moving back here and being around younger Christians when I was teaching or even some kids who came to the church. I'm like, when you grow up with that in the atmosphere, you can't relax in environments where it's not all Christians because you're like guilt and pressure. Should I give them the pitch? And I can't just, can I just have a drink and hang out once, you know, and just <laughs> chill? And, or do I have to like, if I didn't say Jesus three times tonight, you know, like, I'm <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
It's, well, and it's, and it's worse if you're a minister, you know, because you're always saying, okay, I'm not just a human being. I'm, I'm a, you almost artificially elevate yourself. And then you're in this, you can never let your guard down in that regard too. Um, it's, it's terrible. I always tell people, you know, the greatest thing I started to re- remember was God is not out to squash me. And if I remember <laughs> that, then maybe I just act differently. You're all guys, I have to squash me. You're all, but then that Roman Catholic upbringing, you're all, no, he is. He, yeah, yeah, he's not out to, but he will. <laughs> yeah, I had never, even when we talk about our beliefs in God changing and our faith, what, what I think you and I would see as our faith actually growing in a good way and evolving. I realized that over the years where the concern of getting it wrong, yeah, the fear of, what if I change my beliefs? And then when that belief changes, somehow that makes me not, I don't know, fully a Christian or an outsider to the thing, which then means like God isn't on my side or love me, which then affects like, again, like the eternal death. I started seeing, like I never really considered or I never felt like that in my own life because I didn't grow up with the guilt. I did go to Catholic school first, second, and third grade, though. I didn't know what was yeah. happening. I, I, st- I still, to this day, I'm like, I don't know if I left because my parents couldn't afford it anymore or the school uh, was like, or the school was like, this kid is, he's not, this is not okay here. They never yeah, told need, me, thankfully. We need more money or an exorcism, one of these things. <laughs> But, you know, so our house was very, like, just kind of, like, nominal. Like, we weren't talking about God. It wasn't like, what did Jesus do in your heart today, Kevin? You know, at dinner, we were having those. But I also didn't have, you know, the guilt and the shame of faith stuff. I didn't have that kind of baggage either way, which was really served me, funny enough, that served me well in my life, you know. But my, like, when I described that, my first and primary experience of God wasn't a mental ascent to a set of beliefs. It was a transformative encounter and experience. Like my first experience of God was universal affirmation. It was truly unconditional love. It was the infinite light pouring itself into you. And I guess it would, I realized over the years, it it was a bit easier for me to let my beliefs change. Cause I'm like, Oh, that thing, that presence that knew me and loved me that deeply, that has never, ever shifted once at all. It's never changed. So I'm like, well, you can let go of the belief, but the reality, that waking up experience of knowing and being known by God, that has never changed at all. But I realize for people, it's that pressure and the fear of if my belief shift, that's taken away or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or, or yeah, that you're gonna start. You have this score, and you've got 85 percent of the things right. And if you shift your theology, now you're down to a 73. And what is God doing? Is God panicking or getting ready to push a button? And I think that's the hardest. Or thing. Or, or squash or squash you. That's right. It's, it's <laughs> like it's God has large thumbs, and it's just. <laughs> and I think that's the sad part. It's just you know, for me, for God to be worthy of being God, then God has to be able to outlove and forgive me in ways that I can't comprehend. There is no scenario where God has any cruelty and malevolence or is trying to trick me or I'm trying to prove myself. It, it, for me, that doesn't make sense with the character of a God who is love, which is basically why the book, why I wrote the book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thou shall. <laughs> we just have to remember, oh, God's not out to squash me. That's so funny. You know, with 
you know, growing through your own journey, this vision of, you know, if God is love, don't be a jerk, the freedom, the exhaling, the movement in your own life. I'm sure there has been moments where, you know, you can feel the pull over the years towards like oppositional energy, you know, being angry at the church and wrestling with all of those things, you know, struggling, struggling to have hope for the church, struggling to have hope in the people who identify with Jesus. What is it? What does it take to move through all of that and to still allow what you call love to be the one thing, like to keep fighting for what you say in the book, a Christianity that resembles Jesus? How do you, you know, accept all those things? You're going to go through times where you're struggling, frustrated, angry, but what is required for us to move through all that, remain hopeful and still fight for that story you tell in the end of the book? to maintain or to work for a Christianity that actually resembles Jesus? Well, I, I think for me that, you know, the anger that we can develop, it's, it's natural. It's like sort of a, an ignite, an ignition point, right? The anger, we look at the world, we see something happening. It's really natural to immediately feel that. And what I think is that over time, if we cultivate that anger, if we nurture it and it just, it becomes toxic, for me, it's always about taking that anger at injustice or that anger at dysfunction and then saying, I need to transfer that anger into something else. I need to transform it into some sort of action, something I'm taking part in, something I'm producing. And so that's really the thing for me. It's getting into community and figuring out how do I want to express this anger. And I talk a lot to people about, I, I'm always doing two different kinds of work. So I'm fighting, I'm confronting injustice, I'm speaking into that injustice. And then I'm making sure I'm taking time to be in community, communities of people who are damaged by that injustice. And so I'm doing the same loving work, but it's not all about the fight. It's not all about the battle. Mm. So Jesus is you know, status quo changer, but he's pastoral, he's caregiver, mm. and mm. he's activist. And so mm. I'm trying to make sure I'm doing both of those things in equal measure. If I'm only in the fight, I'm not going to resemble Jesus fully. Mm. That's so good. Yeah, staying staying grounded in the actual re- relationship, staying in places where I'm not just challenging and fighting the way things are, but I'm actually in places where I am living with compassion, you know, I'm in solidarity with the struggle. It's that I think is a huge, that's one of the things I've seen for people who are changing in their beliefs is the people who do it well and can remain hopeful and can keep moving through it into Mm -hmm. a more beautiful version of the faith. One that resembles Jesus is the ability to stay connected. Like is, is the quality of connection. Because if all you're doing is fighting the system, but you're not connected and like, even you know at the end of at the end of Daniel Berrigan's life, you know for those of you who have never heard of Daniel Philip Berrigan, the radical priest of the '60s, you know they were on Time Magazine cover. They're like, just awesome, amazing guys. And at, and John Deere was telling a story near the end of Daniel Berrigan's life. I mean, this is a guy who you know was been arrested oh probably over a hundred times. You know, fighting for peace, thinking this movement of peace in the sixties is going to lead to not a utopia, but definitely a more hopeful version of America. That's not in a constant culture of war and state of war all the time. And to be honest, it didn't, (laughs) you know, like I'm sure a lot of his desires and like the outcomes he was working for didn't work out that way. And that's tough when you look at, you know, your legacy and to know you've given so much and things sometimes can feel worse, but great guy at the end of Berrigan's life, 
you know, when someone asked him, like, how do you stay hopeful? And he was like around 90. How do you stay hopeful at this time? And he was just like, I have to stay connected to hopeful things. It wasn't, I'm reading a new book about peace. It wasn't, I learned something new. He's like, on a cosmic level when things can seem so heavy, the things that actually make you feel lighter is staying connected locally to beautiful, hopeful spaces where you actually see, feel, and know resurrection for yourself. And I remember in my mid-20s mind who was so reading everything, I wasn't ready to hear that yet. I was like, no, you got to like read and learn this. But it was like the simplicity after the heaviness of staying connected with spaces that feel like resurrection helps, helps you relax and stay in it and stay hopeful where I'm not just fighting it all the time. Well, and the other thing about that, you know, too, Kevin, is, is you, I tell people the, the, the large and the far away are always going to really make you lose hope, but the close Absolutely. and the small are not. And, you know, I had a guy at a, at a Q&A a couple of years ago, I'll never forget it. He said, John, here's what I do. I have two news feeds in my life. One is Twitter and Facebook and the news, and that's only going to give me discord. It's only going to give me sensationally bad stories, but there's another news feed and it's the one on the ground. If I turn my head down and look at my, the streets where I live and the people whose names and faces I know, mm. there are a million reasons to be hopeful. So I have to okay. make sure I look at both of those news feeds i thought that is it really yeah no that is that's so good and i think that's always the thing where when now says you know you don't think yourself into new ways of living you live yourself into new ways of thinking and so often like i'm i don't, I don't know if you if you've ever like worked with the enneagram at all but like i'm a five so i'm a person who's naturally like head you know in my mind and oriented and so often like you know the the, the the way you frame that is good of like the distant and then the up close and how those affect us, the, the big and the distant, if you, if that's all you're doing, you will get overwhelmed yeah. and you'll get anxious and you'll feel frustrated. Cause you're like, damn it. It's the world's just on fire all the yeah, time. Right. And so often I think when we think about the word becoming flesh, when we think about embodiedness, when we think about experiencing these things locally, I'm like so many of the questions we ask and wrestle with in our minds are only going to be answered in our hearts and through our bodies. Mm, You're asking right. like either mind wants to figure it out till it finally clicks. And like, now you're at peace when the body in this incarnational life is no, like I have all those questions, but now like say, for example, in our church, we have this initiative called saying grace mm -hmm. where we bring together half LGBTQ people, half Christians who probably have like a traditional uh, orientation towards sexuality and we do these curated like four four weeks four dinners together of conversations and dinners and they're like some of my favorite things in the world yeah. and those are the spaces when you're there like the tears the wine the people the moments the those special moments in life where you're like everybody in this room is synced up yes like the the beautiful the beautiful and the tragic weight of life is all here and we all know it and we're all in it and we're all present like mm -hmm. the 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 questions of my mind and the frustration that comes from the distant stuff starts to dissipate and settle as i'm here in the space it doesn't cuz i it's not cuz i have answers to the questions it's cuz the questions on one level become irrelevant in the embodied experience of love and compassion and life while i'm here so yeah, I, you know, I think the experience yeah. of that is that's so crucial for for moving forward. 
That is so true. And, and that experience you're talking about, I tell people that stuff is not going to trend nationally. It's never going to mm, be on the news. So it's exactly. never going to register in your brain, oh, but, but you see it happening. And in that room and in that moment, that is the world. That is the small world that I say you get to save. And that's, you know, that's the other part about it. The more you participate in those acts, the less dependent you are on those big headlines or those trends to dictate how you feel about the world. And, you know, you're, and to your point, you know, you're never denying that those things are there. You're never denying systemic ills or, you know, larger picture stuff, but you're realizing the only way I reach those systems is through stories. Mm. And so I'm in those stories and the systems will be what they are going to be as we work on this. Mm. So good. And I, I, I feel like, I feel like I have to ask this question because for, for the listeners, especially the ones who are going to get the book, if God is love, don't be a jerk. And when you read it, and you see one of the blurbs, people are going to wonder, how the hell does John get Chelsea Clinton to blurb his book? <laughs> well, I mean, well, a little insight, too, if you don't know, the, in the world of writing and publishing books, blurbs are like the, the only evidence that the, the devil exists for me. Because basically, <laughs> what you ask you, you're at, you write this book, and then they say to you, okay, now what you need to do is get some people to write about it, but it needs to be people with a larger platform and, and larger you know group of people around them and people you don't know or can't get to. So that's mm. what you do. And so you end up begging people to read it. And what for, in my case, what happened was... So no one, so everybody knows, don't, don't try to shame me when next year, when my first book's coming out, when I'm reaching out to John for a blurb, just from, just from this conversation. Yeah, that's right. He knows, he knows what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Just let it be. I'm putting block on my phone right now. (laughs) But yeah, and that's, and most people who write, they understand that whole process. So they're usually very gracious but I had written about, you know, some stuff about the election in 2016 and some supportive stuff of Hillary. And then I happened to be friends with, with Chelsea on Twitter and just, I usually don't um, abuse those connections, but I basically messaged her and say, Hey, would you be okay looking at this? And she understood who I was from the experience that, you know, I, that she had reading my words. Mm. And then, so she said, great, I'll read it. And she was very gracious. And the thing about it is most people will not, you know, I say, don't, don't give me a blurb if it doesn't, if this doesn't move you, um, you don't need to say something you don't mean. And so that was a really great gesture on her part. And it's always really cool when someone, uh, you know, does that for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. great. I think that's, it's funny for people to hear this and it's like, Oh, blurb. It's like, Oh, this, Oh, Chelsea Clinton. Okay. You kind of keep going. It's so funny. The name you're like, where do I know that name from? You're like, Oh yeah. Chelsea Clinton. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, yeah, and that's part of the work, you know, doing this work too, in a larger sense, you just start to realize there are connections that you start to make that would be, un, that, that would never have happened had you not just said, I, I tell people this all started for me with seven or 800 words in a blog post that I wrote that really meant something to me. And then those words did a work that nothing else could do. And you just follow where that leads. And so that's what we're to we're, circle back where we started for Christians and ministers speak authentic truth. And there, it's nothing but beautiful things will happen, mm, you know. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get, you get nothing but beautiful things. You get, you got to get fired a couple of times, but then you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish, I wish you all a termination, and that, and then everything will be great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the questions as we as we kind of come closer to the end that I've asked people because I really started focusing my energy on this you know, last year during sort of 
the middle, I don't, I don't even know if it's the middle, but a few months into shutdowns and, you know, the coronavirus shutting down in March. And then whenever I started this and it was, I mean, this has been a, an, it's been a very, very interesting and fascinating and difficult and challenging time specifically to be a pastor, but all to be a lead, to take any, to be a leader, to be a small business owner, to be anybody who takes responsibility for a whole larger than yourself. There's just, it's hard for everybody, but there's added dimensions to trying to do that through this. It's, it's a difficult time. And I feel for people who have seen the things they dreamt, like when I see a small business close, I'm like, that was, that was a dream that person had 10 years ago. And right. thought about for five years and finally started. And then for some reason, six months before the shutdown is when they started it. And like, I, 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 uh, I just, you know, I feel for the, for people who have been through that. Yeah. So I asked people, if we think about the pandemic time, what it's done to us, the coronavirus, especially last year, this post George Floyd uprising, the protests, public demonstrations, the end of the Trump era, as a t- as an apocalyptic time, mm. you know, apocalyptic, you know, not being in the end times conspiracy kind of a sense of the term, but as being true to the word apocalypse, which as a pastor, I'm sure, you know, is being seen as a revealing, right? Yep. The, the, the apocalypse to reveal, to unveil things. If we think about this past 18 months or so as apocalyptic, specifically in the U S what has been or what is being revealed through this apocalypse about the u.s or specifically about the church and christians in the u.s during this time this is an apocalyptic moment you look behind the veil john and what 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 are maybe what are the things you've seen that now people are seeing more broadly what is being revealed during this time I, i think the way i describe it you know is that there is a difference between if you if you've ever broken a bone and you didn't realize that you broke it, it just you did damage and you were hurting, and then all of a sudden you go and X-ray and you realize, oh, this has been broken actually or cracked for a while, and you that you're sort of surprised. But if you have a compound fracture, if that bone breaks through, you're like, there's no question, something is wrong here. And I mm-hmm. think what the last few years have done is kind of push push that right through the skin and all, all this stuff, all that latent racism and all the misogyny in the church and all the white supremacy in that nationalistic Christianity, it was always there, but there was sort of um, an unleashing of it because I think people like Trump gave it permission, gave people permission to be their mm. worst selves. Mm. So I think that's been what I've revealed is I didn't realize I look at like my former mega church and a lot of people there and I see what they believe and post now. I couldn't fathom while I was leading them that that, as a pastor, that that's who they were. Mm. And maybe they, maybe they changed, but mostly I think it's, they began to be more comfortable in verbalizing things that they would never have before Mm. with that. It's, it's a, there's a grief with that. There's just such sadness, but then you say, okay, but now I know what I'm dealing with. Now Mm. I see the break and I go, what am I going to do about it? So as tragic as it is, that revelation is, that's the springboard. That's the launching pad for the work that we do. Mm. Yeah, I think, Right in 2016, when Trump got elected, one of my first ways of thinking about that was like a therapist working with a client. My wife's a therapist. She's a, she has her own private practice out here in Hawaii. And it's like the person who's wrestling with something in front of you 
where they cognitively might know it's probably not the best thing, but their desires are like a train where you're like, they're going to do this. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And the therapist is like, you know what? Like, just go do all those things and fulfill those desires. And talk. it's like Dr. Phil's like, and how that's, how is that working out for you? You know, it's like sometimes even pastorally, especially for kids in their twenties, it's like, I can talk to them about illusions. I can say, if you work your whole life towards this and finally get it, Mm-hmm. It probably isn't going to deliver what you want. You can see those things because I because you've exper- I've experienced those things. Oh yeah, you know. But then I can see when a young person isn't ready to believe that in their soul, and I'm like, hey man, just we all have our own journey. If you're gonna do that, go for it, and talk to me in three years and tell me how that works out, and then we can have an interesting conversation about what this all really is. But until then, you're gonna do it. Yeah. To me, 2016 was like the therapist to the collective ego and shadow of the United States being like, if this is what you want, mm. talk to me in four years and tell me how that works out for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, and gosh, and not to interrupt you, man, but the 20, and what I think the story now is people saying, I still can't admit that that was a really poor choice. And I'm so invested in this story being true and me being correct that I'm not going to give that up. And that's where I think we're still struggling is I thought that a lot of the people, a lot of the 81% who voted for Trump in 2016 would now be going, okay, uh, my bad, let's start over. And they're not, they're digging in their heels. And so you see that self-preservation is a real, uh, that's a real toxic thing. You started off with Trump and you doubled down with QAnon. <laughs> That's true, right? Yeah. Now you're taking, uh, you know, shoot sacrifices or whatever. And, and that's where, you know, I, I call it moral confusion. The moment you, the moment they said, they saw that Access Hollywood tape and said uh, in 2016, I'm still going to vote for him. Mm. I think there's no way that you cannot be altered morally by that because you either have to have an awakening where you admit a lot. You know, we were talking about our exactly. mutual friend when we started and basically he said, I voted for Trump and I woke up and realized the, the damage I had done. And now he's living to be a response to that and undoing the damage. And a lot of people aren't willing to do mm-hmm. that really difficult work. And I get mm-hmm. it because that comes mm-hmm. with grief and it comes with a change of your life and it comes mm-hmm. with a new story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree so much. Uh, last thing then for the podcast, uh, you know, for people, if, you, if you're not a pastor, you never have been. People have preached a lot. Like, John, how many sermons have you preached in your life, do you think? Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, you know I've, I've written a 1,300 blog posts before I even, you know, and then I was doing ministry for 15, 17 years before that. So I've talked a lot, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's why I brought that up. People don't know preachers. I Obviously, I'm one of them, too. We always got something to say. You know, we have ways we like to wrap things up and, you know, perhaps I I feel bad for preachers who just, you know, who always built so strongly to the altar call at one point and later in their life, they're like, do I believe in altar calls? What is an altar call? What are you calling people (laughs) to? Um, The last word for the book, you know, I gave people just a glimpse into it so they can, it's like a preview so they can dive into it more of the, if God is love, don't be a jerk. And the chapters are focusing on issues like the church's relationship with the LGBTQ community and specific things of how we can move forward with the Christianity that resembles Jesus, one that moves beyond looking like a jerk. What is your, 
you know, this is the podcast was the 50 minute sermon, just like the length of the ones you used to give. And now you build up (laughs) and now you build up to the altar call. Here's to ask, what is the final word for people who are, you know, hearing this, looking into the book, you're like, this is what I'm hoping for you. You call them to the altar and you're like, this is what I hope this book can really help you see, you know, what, what is somebody saying yes to? If, if they, you know, enter into the journey of this book? Well, I think, you know, whether you're a religious person or not, the heart of what I'm inviting people to do is talk about and experience the idea that if your belief system doesn't make you more compassionate and more kind and more loving, mm. then it's the wrong belief system and you need mm. to get a different one. And it's, it's asking you whether you are from a faith tradition or not, that you look at the world and say, I want to leave this world and more kind and more diverse and safer than when I found it. And if you're not going to do that, there is no point to religious tradition. Um, and so I'm going to invite you to decide what that means for you. Yeah. Mm, that's great. I did. John, a, I did a blog oh, I'm sorry, man. No, 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 quick. no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just said, you know, I did, I did a blog post, my most recent one, uh, as of today, it's just about how to know if you got the wrong religion and it sort of summarizes this stuff. It just basically says, figure out the faith system or the belief system or the worldview that's going to make you a decent human being. And that's the right one. Mm. That's so it's, it's funny to hear you say that. And I love it. Just the simplicity of what you just said about being a decent human or in your twenties, you're going to take the world for Jesus. And then your forties and fifties, you're like, can we just, just be decent, please. One of my, one of my best friends, we always joke around where I say to him and we kind of say like, you know, in your twenties, he's going to take over the world. He's like in my late thirties or thirties. I'm just trying to get one good night of sleep. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, someone asked me yesterday, why didn't you call the book, If God is Love, Then Be Loving? And why did you say, not, don't be a jerk? And I said, well, because my aspirations for humanity are much lower and more pedestrian right now. And I thought, it's not, okay, you can be loving and kind, but first, let's just not harm. Yeah. And we, that'll, be a, that'll be a win for humanity. Yeah, not so good, man. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to share so much goodness with the people who are tuning in and you heard it on record here first too john doesn't know he's in trouble because his publicist shot me his number in case there was any technical difficulties so when i need a blurb i'm reaching out you guys can harass him too and help him you know do that for me next year but no man this was such a gift and i'm glad like through rod and through kind of like common good folks that you know i didn't realize that we're tapped in a little bit in that way so hopefully at one of those things in the relatively near future we'll be able to cross paths and and get to meet i would love that man thanks for the work you're doing and look forward to seeing you in person yeah no congrats on the book if god is love don't be a jerk coming out september 28th you can pre you can pre-order on amazon right now i'm sure so tune in with that I just, I know the people who are listening and will love it. So John, thank you again. Thank you, brother. Okay.